All right. Well, like I said, we're in uh, the book of 1 John, and we're in the middle of a series. And the theme of this book is knowing God, also the, the name of our series. And what John has been talking about is knowing God. And the question he's answering is, is do you know God? Or he's asking is, do you know God? How do you know that you know God? And so John has been going through, and he said that people who know God walk in the light. This is one thing they do. They understand who God is, and they walk in the light of God's character. He says people that know God, they confess their sins. Uh, they, they are coming to grips with the real, uh, with who they are in reality, and they confess their sins before the God that they know. People that know God, they see their God as their advocate, that God is for them. He says people that know God grow in knowing God. They develop, and they move towards uh, love and knowing God. And he said, last week he said, people that know God love the brethren and the sistren. <laughs> Today what John is going to say is that here's one thing we do not do if we know God. There's a lot of things that knowing, people that know God do, and John here in our text says, this is something that people know God who know God don't do. Notice he says in verse 15, do not love the world. This is the first negative command in John's letter. And John says, here's how you know that you know God. Here's how you know if you're coming to know God in a deeper way. He says, people that know God do not love the world. And so John uh, talks here about what's been called worldliness in the church. Now, right away, we find ourselves in a little bit of uh, difficulty here because there's probably not any other verses that have been more understood, misunderstood than, than these verses here in this passage. What does it mean to love the world? Here, John is dealing with the Christian's relationship with the world. And what does it mean to be worldly? What does it mean to love the world? What is John talking about here? And like I've said, this has been misunderstood throughout the ages. And so many people have, have uh, understood this to mean that if you really, if you really are not going to love the world, you need to separate yourself from the world. And so early on, the monks and the desert fathers, they literally thought, you know, if we're not going to love the world, we just need to get out of society we need to just get out of culture. We need to go into the desert. We need to get in a cloister where it's just us and our fellow brothers and sisters and God. We need to separate ourselves from the world if we're not going to love it. In the modern day, you might see Christians who get into a Christian bubble and a Christian subculture where all their friends are Christians and all the music they listen to is Christian music. They even wear Christian t-shirts, right? You know, everything is Christian all around them. They've sort of separated themselves from the culture and society. Is this what it means to not love the world? Other people believe that what this means is that we need to take a combative attitude towards the world and culture, right? So do not love the world. This means that we need to fight the culture and the culture wars. We need to be against the world, and we need to get up and fight, and we need to go out and be against, throw bombs over the wall, as it were, into the culture. And so many Christians have taken an us versus them mentality towards the world because they believe that this is what it means not to love the culture that we live in. Do not love the world. Some people believe that this means that we shouldn't enjoy any of the, the activities in the world. Uh, I, you know, some people, you know, they, they become Christians and they burn all of their secular quote-unquote secular uh, CDs, if you're too young to know what a CD is, ask your mom or your dad. 
right? I need, to get, I need to burn all of my CDs. I need to get rid of all, anything secular. No more secular movies. No more secular music. Get rid of all of that stuff. Uh, I, I remember uh, younger, when I was younger, I, I went to a, a Nazarene Christian school, a Nazarene denomination. And one of my best friends, his name was Shane Holloway. He uh, was the son of the pastor of the Nazarene church there. And we invited him over for a sleepover. And at that time, in the early 80s, I was really into Michael Jackson. And so we decided to put on a, a, a dancing performance for his dad. Where we had, we put on, you know, one white glove, you know, and we put on this dance routine to Billie Jean. And so to su- surprise his dad. And uh, anyway, his dad came over, you know, and we, we put on the performance and my parents were turning white. And we realized after he had gone home that Nazarenes were against dancing. Because they believe that dancing was worldly. And there are Christians that say yeah, no co-ed swimming, no mo- movies, no secular music, no playing cards, no chewing tobacco, because all of these things are loving the world. What does it mean to love the world? Does it mean that we stay away from certain quote-unquote worldly activities? Now, it's really important that we get this because what John says is that if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. He says it's crucial that you do not love the world. So we need to understand what in, the, what in the world does it mean not to love the world? And how do you know that you're doing this? How do you know that you're guilty of it? Or in order to get at that, I want to go through the passage, just walk through it. I want us to see three, three, things, three, three things today. Number one, what does it not mean to love the world? First, we need to see what it doesn't mean. And then second of all, what does it mean to love the world? And then finally, why should we not love the world? Three things today. And so first of all, let's uh, look what it doesn't mean. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so what does it not mean when John says, do not love the world? What is John not talking about here? Well, first, first, John is not talking about the physical world. John is not saying, don't love the physical earth. Don't love the planet. Don't, don't enjoy anything physical or material in the world. Uh, God himself created the world. The world that we live in is not bad. Uh, when God created the world, he, he pronounced a benediction over it. He said, everything is what? Good. The earth is the Lord and, the, and, and all the fullness thereof. The plants and the trees and the mountains and the creeks and art and culture, all of these things are, for the most part, good. The world that we live in is God's world, and and God wants us to enjoy his creation. You know, and even the physical appetite, sex, and, and food, and art, all of these things in and of themselves are very, very good things, and God wants us to enjoy them. So when John says don't love the world, he's not saying that we cannot enjoy anything that's in the world. There's an old church father who uh, he, was, uh, he was very against sex. He thought sex was inherently bad. And so he said, listen, Christians should not have sex on Sunday because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. And Christians should not have sex on Monday in memory of those who have departed. 
On Thursdays, they shouldn't have sex because that is the day you're meant to think about the coming of Christ. Oh, and and not, no sex on Friday because Jesus Christ was crucified on Friday. Or even on Saturdays in order to honor the, the Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you can almost picture this guy thinking of some reason not to have sex on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. <laughs> Things like sex and food and arts and culture, these are not in and of themselves bad. God created this world. Nor is God saying that we shouldn't love the people in the world. You know, there's a famous passage, uh, John 3.16. Probably all of us know this passage. It says that God so loved the world. God himself loves the world. And so what John is saying here, at very least, it cannot mean that we, d- we shut ourselves off and close ourselves off from non-Christians and people who are not inside the church. You need to love the people in the world. John earlier says that Jesus Christ is not only the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ died for this world, and Jesus loves the people in this world. And I hope that we as a church can can be a group of people that care for those outside of the four walls. Right? We want to be a church that looks out. We don't just care about ourselves. We're not just looking to be a bigger church and a stronger community. We are working for a better city. We want to make this place, Batesville, a, a better place for all people because God so loved the world. We need to be for the life of this world, and we need to get to know our non-Christian friends and neighbors, and we need to care about them. We're not just all about caring for us, God so loved the world, so we need to go where God's heart is, and his heart is in the people of this world because he died for them. John also isn't saying that we shouldn't care or disengage from the issues facing the world. He's not saying that Christians ought to divorce themselves from the the problems that are plaguing this planet, like environmental problems or problems of hunger and poverty. You know, a lot of times Christians can just say, you know, this place that we live in the world is so evil, it's so dark, I'm just going to turn in and I'm just going to forget about the world because Jesus is coming back, he's going to take us out of here. Well, wait a minute there. God created this world, one day he's going to redeem all of creation and so we should care about it. You know, environmental issues, like I said, and hunger and poverty, these are things that God deeply cares for. And so we should be involved in things like our Father's table. You know, as Sam said earlier, this is a great opportunity for, for us to work for the life of the world. Or we can look outside of the four walls and we could look at the problems that are pe- plaguing our, our world here and our society and our city. And we can go out there and we can engage and we can love and we can be for the people in our city. God doesn't want us to be just simply in the world existing until Jesus Christ comes back. He wants us to be for the world. In fact, you remember there's an Old Testament uh, point where it was in the book of Jeremiah where the people were in exile. They were in uh, the city of Babylon, that evil dark city, a pagan city. And Jeremiah said, this is what I want you to do in Babylon. Don't close yourself off. Don't turn inward. Don't just exist there until I take you out of the place. He says, I want you to pray for the peace of your city. I want you to plant trees and care for others. I want you to be for the city of Babylon, not just in it. And so when John says, do not love the world, he's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the world 
or that we shouldn't engage with and care for the people in this world or that we shouldn't care for the problems that are in the world. God himself is deeply involved with his creation. He wants us to be here too. So what does it mean then? What does it mean when John says, do not love the world? Well, as we look at it here, what John is, John is saying here is that there are, there are two different meanings of the word world. As you look at John's writings, uh, when John talks about the world, he talks about it in terms of a very positive thing. That's one when he talks about the plants and the trees and the culture and what have you. But then there's a negative aspect of this word world. And it's important for us to understand exactly what John means because meaning makes all the difference. Uh, one of my fa- favorite cartoons is Calvin and Hobbes, and there's this one, uh, you know, Calvin is always imagining himself and all these I- adventures, and one adventure, he's in a, a fighter plane, and he's there manning the gun, and the pilot up front says, enemy planes, two o'clock, and Calvin says, okay, great, got it, what do I do until then? <laughs> what does he mean by two o'clock? You see, there are different meanings to the phrase two o'clock. And there are different meanings to the word world. What does John mean when he says, do not love the world? Well, he's saying that in the the world that we live in is not all good. There's a dark side to the world. There's a brokenness to the world. In fact, at one point, John says, the world as we know it is under the sway of the evil one. Uh, the, The ideas and the and the values that permeate our culture are all tainted by sin. God's good world is broken. And when John says, do not love the world, he's talking about the evil values, the broken values, the depraved mindset that we so often find in the culture. Now, someone says, that's so dark, you know, that's the way you understand culture. Well, all of us can admit that there are things in this world that are not all good. There are values, and there are directions in this world that are absolutely toxic. Whether you're a Christian or not, I think that all of us can admit there are things in this world, there are paths that we could go down that are not good, that should be avoided, that we should not love, and that this is what John is talking about. There's a dark side. There is a world system that we need not to love. Now, what John does here is he spells out what exactly that looks like. He says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Now, John spells it out for us. What is the world? What are these values? He says, I'll tell you exactly what they are. He says, don't love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the things that we need to avoid. So what are they? Well, let's look at them one by one. So the lust of the flesh. Uh, The the word lust, um, it literally means an inordinate affection or desire. So less means something which is, is natural and perfectly right, legitimate, is abused, right? Things that are good like sex or food, the lust of the flesh is when we abuse those things. He says, don't love that. In the world, there is an abuse of sexuality, for example, there's an over-desire for sexuality. Sure, sex is a good thing, but it could, instead of just being a good desire, it could be something that controls you. It can become an ultimate desire. 
And when you look at this world, I mean, all of us can see that there is something wrong when it comes to sensuality and sexuality. There are people here that are living for sensual gratification. Uh, This past week, I was looking at stats related to the pornography industry. And it said something like 90% of children, little boys, by the time they're 10 years old are exposed to porn. And so often they get hooked on this this very addictive substance. And it's because there is something wrong with our world when it comes to sexuality. The lust of the flesh. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act that is to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally strange about the state of sex of the st- sex instinct among us? John says there's something wrong. There's an inordinate desire for sexuality. Right? This, this desire for sex, which is a good thing and a right thing and a God-given thing, can be distorted. And John says don't be enticed by the lust of the flesh. You know, and so many of the movies we watch are just permeated by the lust of the flesh. You know, Game of Thrones, maybe. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to, uh, you know, watch certain TV shows, but we need to be careful that there is a lust of the flesh. There is this enticement that the world is offering that is sex gone wrong, sex perverted, sex distorted, giving us an o- a desire for an, o- an over-desire for sexuality. We see it in our advertising. So have you noticed how often advertisers use sex to sell? You know, I watch sports on the internet a lot, and there's one commercial for um, Michelob Ultra. And it's this woman, you know, she's scantily clad, and she slowly uh, opens the beer, and the the little uh, droplets of water come out, and then she whispers, beer in its organic form. You know, so sensual. Like, what does beer have to do with sensuality? But there is something wrong in our culture when it comes to sex, and we all know that. And John says, do not be enticed by this. He He says, also, here's another thing that is in the world that you shouldn't love. He says, the lust of the eyes. What is the lust of the eyes? Well, this essentially has to do with an over desire for things that you can see. An over-desire for um, possessions, for uh, maybe your physical appearance, right? An over-desire for things that are surface level. This is what um, the, the old church fathers called vanity. So there's a way of living where we can just be enamored with material things, uh, I'm, renov- I'm renovating my bathrooms in my house, and, you know, I've watched a lot of HGTV, like a lot of you have, and I'm just, you know, I've got this vision for my house. I want the, the bathrooms to be updated. I want the kitchen to look great, you know, and I'm just thinking about the, the house that I want. I want it to look like Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know. This is what I want. And so we finally, after years and years, renovated the bathrooms, 
and I'll tell you, I th- they look great. I mean, I was the other day, I was in my bathroom and just looking at it, just, oh, it looks so amazing. Taking a picture, you know, putting the filter on it, putting it on Instagram, and, you know, just thinking how awesome it was. And that very night, one of my kids got into the brand new bath- bathtub with subway tile all around it, and the pole that was holding up the curtain fell and put a huge black dent in my bathtub. And it's almost like that was a heart check there. Hey, do do you love this a little bit too much, Brent? I think we can love our houses a little bit too much. We could love our cars a little bit too much. We can have this vision of the good life that is all about material things. Houses and cars, and we can love our looks too much. Some of you, you know, you're just enamored with the way you look, and it's all about, you know, the the new clothes and and the new hairdo and the new makeup. We could be enamored with things that are surface level, and what John is saying, do not love this. Don't, Don't fall in love with this stuff. This is what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about the things in the world like plants and trees, art and culture. I'm talking about a perverted way of understanding objects where it's surface level and you're yearning for a certain outward appearance. He said it also looks like the pride of life. The pride of life, maybe the best way to describe this is self-glorification, a thirst for power. And you can divide this into two different sections. There's the pride of life that's characterized by selfish ambition. It's all about me. It's all about my success. It's all about my achievement. I want to see my name on that list. I want, I want to have the power uh, where people look up to me. You, you could divide it into selfish ambition or contempt to, uh, for others, where I'm better than that person, where I'm ahead of this other person. You know, at the root of pride is always comparison. Not, you, don't just, you don't want to just be the best. You want to be better than others. And there's this pride of life. And those of us who uh, are successful maybe are particularly prone to this sort of thing. Those of us who have power, whether that's political power or maybe economic power, you know, people, of us, people who maybe have degrees from institutions that are respected, those of us who maybe have reached certain levels of achievement, you know, success is not a bad thing. Money is not a bad thing. Getting a degree from a great institution is not a bad thing. But it's when these things go to your head and you start thinking, I'm somebody because of it. I'm better than this other person because of it. The pride of life the feeling that you're invincible, the thirst for power, the, the desire for more. John says, this is the pride of life. So John says, this is what I'm talking about when I say don't love the world. Don't love lust of the flesh. Don't love the lust of the eyes of the pride of life. These are the things that are dangerous. These are the things that you need to look out for. Notice how subtle they are. John says, don't love them. Right, this is something that happens in your affections. And you may not be involved in an illicit affair or maybe you're, you're not wealthy and have all of these things or maybe you don't have all the power but you want it. Maybe when you watch TV shows, you're just thinking, man, if only I could have a relationship like that. Right, these are things that grab hold of your heart. And it's not simply, you know, avoid dancing and co-ed swimming. Don't listen to secular music. You could be listening to Christian music all day long and yet lust has your heart. 
It's subtle and it's dangerous and it's enticing. You know, John wouldn't say don't love the world unless we were all tempted to love these things. Unless there wasn't something really enticing about power and there wasn't something really enticing about illicit sexuality. You see, we are tempted to go after these things in the world. And they appeal to us, even though they're, they're sort of uh, counterfeits of the real thing. You know, the real world is good. And what these things are is they are counterfeits of the real world, and we go after them. And John says, don't do that. You know, we've been uh, getting into fishing lately. And uh, when we were fishing the other day, we are using these lures, you know, these fake little fish, the fluorescent little things that are made out of rubber. And at one point, my little son said, Dad, why did the fish go after these fake fish? There's real fish out there. Why do they go after the fake ones? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? Why do we go after the fake? Sex is good. Why do we go after the cheap substitute? Right? Possessions are great. Why do we go after the inordinate desire for things? Why do we chase after these things? Well, John says there's something in us that, is, that finds them so enticing. And John says, do not love the world. Let's move on to the final point, which is why should we not do this? Why should we not love the world? Notice what John says here. He, he gives us the reason why. He says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Why should we not love the world? Well, first John says that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Don't love the world because love for these things and love for God are mutually exclusive. Love of the world and love for God is a zero-sum game. And what I mean by that is that the more you love the world, the less you love God. And the more you love God, the less you love the world. John says you either are enticed and enamored with these things or you're enticed and enamored by God. It's either or. Love of the world is a zero-sum game. And uh, James puts it this way. This is James 4.4. To be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. You can't be chasing after these things and also have a deep desire for God at the same time. As Jesus said, we cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. In other words, what John is getting at here is, is idolatry. John is saying that when you love the world, essentially what you're doing is you're putting something else in God's place. Right? You only have so much love. You, you have the, the human heart abhors a vacuum. We are always put, putting something ultimate on the throne of our hearts. And John says it's either going to be one, it's either going to be these things like lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, sex, money, and power, or it's going to be God. Which is it? The more you love the world, the less you're going to desire God. And the more you desire God, the less you're going to desire the world. John says don't love the world because it's a zero-sum game. You can't love all of it. You've got to choose. And he says, choose wisely because he says, the world is passing away 
along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's another reason why you shouldn't love the world, because the world and all of these things in the world are passing away. And in other words, he's saying, if you are somebody who gives your life to pursuing illicit sexuality, you'll have fun now. I'm not going to lie to you, John says. You'll have fun now, but listen, that sort of thing is passing away. It's on its way out or you can give yourself to possessions, just spending your life amassing you know, a beautiful home and a great car and looking good. And he says, but listen, don't give yourself to that because that sort of thing is passing away. And power, no matter how great it is to feel like you have all of this power, he says, if you spend your life pursuing power, I'm telling you, he says, that is passing away. If you want your life to last If you want to live a life of meaning and substance, he says, do not love the world. You're going to waste your life. Because the world is passing away, John says. I love it. It says in the book of Hebrews, it's talking about Moses. And at one point, Moses had the choice. He was in Pharaoh's household. He had money, sex, and power at the tip of his fingertips. And it says that Moses chose to suffer with the people of God instead of to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That was a choice against worldliness. And John says it was a wise choice because the world is passing away. Don't give yourself to these things because they're on their way out. You're going to waste your life. In the Old Testament, there's uh, Solomon, you know, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he, he spent his life amassing sex, money, and power. He had all the women he could ever want. He had all the money and, and possessions he could ever want. He had all the power he could ever want. He said, I gave my life to these things, and you know what he says about all of it? He said, it was vanity. It was vapor. It was like chasing after something, and when you finally get it, there's nothing there. He says, the world, these things are passing away. They're empty, and they won't satisfy you. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, oh, they're so enticing, but it's like chasing after the wind. They will never satisfy your soul. In other words, John says, don't love the world. Do not give your heart to that which will not satisfy your heart. Don't give your heart to something that's not going to satisfy it. Uh, Blaise Pascal put it this way, there was once in man a true happiness of which there is now remains, which, of which there now remains to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. But these are all in, inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. Only God will satisfy you. So he says, do not love the world because the world, he says, and its desires, all of these things are passing away and they will not satisfy your soul. And so let me conclude here. Are you all still with me here? Don't love the world. Don't be enamored with the things in the world. But how do we avoid doing this? I mean, I think it's enticing, isn't it? I mean, all of us every day, tomorrow you're going to go to work and there's going to be things that are going to be drawing your heart away from God. And, and for all of us, it's different. Maybe for you, it's sex. You know, it's the lust of the flesh. These are the things that you're just pining after. This is what you want. Or maybe for somebody else, it's the lust of the eyes. It's I just want more, more, more. 
You know, it's, it's, my, it's my physical appearance. It's my, it's my things. This is what I want. Or maybe for you, it's power. How do you avoid going after these things? Well, I think it is to be enamored with another object. I think it's to be enamored with Jesus Christ himself. If love is a zero, of zero-sum game, what John, I think, wants us to do is pour our lives into learning to love and desire God. Well, how do you do that? How do you desire God? Well, you need to look at Jesus. There's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That is, the more you you look at Jesus and see what he's done for you. Now, Jesus Christ loves the world. He loves the world so much that he died for the world. Uh, He loves you and he gave himself for you. You are his object of supreme affection. He's pursuing you. He's going after you. And the more you see Jesus doing that for you, the more you learn to love him. And the more you learn to love him, the less you love the things in the world. Be enamored with Jesus. Look at him. Look at what he's done for you. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, Jesus is the only savior in the world who if you gain him will satisfy you and if you fail him will forgive you. Jesus is beautiful. He's the only thing that if you put him at the center of your life will fulfill you and satisfy you. Remember the story in the uh, New Testament where Jesus is talking to a woman at the well and he's talking to her about living water. And at one point she says, what is this living water? What are you talking about? And he says, I'll tell you what it is. Go get your husband and I'll tell you. And she says, oh, I don't, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. In other words, he's saying, I'll tell you what the world is. I'll tell you what the living water is. The living water is that which you've been looking for in men and haven't been able to find it. I've got what you're looking for, Jesus says. Stop going after all these things. You think they're going to make you happy. He says, I am, the one, I am the only thing that if you get me, I will satisfy you. And if you fail me, I will forgive you. Jesus Christ is the one that we need to be enamored with. So John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the danger, he says. I want you to know God. He says, I want you to experience the fulfillment and the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, there's a barrier. There's something out there that if you begin to love that, it's going to suck your desire for God right out of you. And he says, it's something called the world. He says, do not love this. Yeah, love the world, love the culture, you know, love plants and trees and art and culture. Love all of these things. Love the people in the world. Chew tobacco, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't do that. But, but this is not what John is talking about. He's talking about love for the world. And he says, run away from that at all costs. It will sap your love for God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage and for this warning, Lord, a warning that you've given us out of love for us. God, you want us to, to drink full of the living water. You want us to be full of you. You have what we need. God, in knowing you is fullness of joy. 
And yet, God, for so many of us, we think that the, the deepest joys in life are found in inordinate lusts, things that will never satisfy us. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Give us the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of John who just, was, they were able to look at the world and see the vanity in it. And I pray that we would see the vanity as well. And I pray that we would see in you the fountain of living water. God, I pray that, that we would drive closer into giving our lives and, and living our lives completely for you so that we may receive the joy that comes from knowing you. Help us, Lord, not to love the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.